Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts, an evergreen podcasts network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Hello, Caroline. It is getting a little bit uh, cooler outside. I think we finished up that summer-appropriate Charles Manson series just in time. Just kidding. I'm back. No, hey, hootie hootie hoo. Save that for the next time I do an ad read. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, it's Charles Manson here for Magic Mind. <laughs> For Manscaped. Yeah, they would love that, right? I mean, to be to be fair, uh, he did need it. He needed it, and Manscaped would be cool. It would that. be funny. <laughs> They'd be down. Um, Manscaped, get at us if you want Charlie to do an ad read. <laughs> um, but we have left the summertime behind us. Uh, it is hoodie weather out there, which we love. It is jeans weather out there, which we adore. Uh, and pretty soon it's going to be Halloween. Carrie, this is going to be the first Halloween that we have like a front stoop that's on Ugh. the street. So I have been stocking up every so often at Costco and BJ's and getting these big boxes of full-sized candies. So I've gotten a big box of full-sized candy bars, like a like a chocolate assortment. I got a box of like full-sized Skittles and Starburst for kids that might not like chocolate. And I got a, a box of these little packs of Pokemon booster cards and then they're like it's called like a booster pack and those are for kids that have allergies um so I'm really excited I want to be the house on the block that is like ooh, we have to go there because they have all the full-size candy well I think we're we're in good stead because you are doing your homework that's for sure yes eventually I want to have like a whole walkthrough for trick-or-treaters and stuff but since we just moved I don't think that's going to work unless the walkthrough is like ooh, look at our leaky faucets boo they are scary. They're frightening me. Uh, the bills are frightening me. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm really excited to have a, a house where we can ha- hand out candy slash Pokemon cards. Um, and I'm really excited for this Halloween. I think it's going to be nice. Knock on wood. Um, it's been weird the last few years. It has, but uh, here we are. We're, we're home, we're haunted, and we're happening. Get used to it. Okay. Um. So to ring in spooky season, I thought I would take us to spookier climbs. Certainly last week's story was a scary one. A last month's story, I should say. Yes. But not spooky. Not spooky, scary skeletons. Not fun for Halloween. No, Charles Manson is scary, but he's not spooky. Yeah. So uh, we're doing a spooky month this week, Carrie. We're talking about things. We're doing a spooky month this week? We're starting a spooky month this week. (laughs) Okay. But we're not doing a month worth of episodes again, right? Well, it well, I don't know. It's going to be three or four weeks. It's going to be at least three weeks here. Okay, you're sounding like me at the beginning of the Manson series. I know, it's not going to be six weeks. See so. y'all in December. I don't have enough vampire shit for six weeks, but uh, this oh. week, yeah, we're talking about vampires this month, Carrie. Ooh. Uh, blood sur- suckers. I, I hinted at it earlier this Skin month. Skin sparklers. On the sk- hmm. We don't like those. <laughs> we don't care for those. Uh, I think we've shared our thoughts when we talked about True Blood uh, before. We, we'll talk about pop culture vampires a little later this month, but I'm going to start with the historical underpinnings, some of the uh, characters throughout history that helped inform our modern-day vampire picture. And the listener may already be aware. Well, they are, because they saw the title of this episode. But that even, it might have been hint enough anyway, that today we are going to be talking about Vlad the Third, a.k.a. Vlad Tepish Dracula, A.K.A. Vlad the Impaler. Oh, love of Vlad. 
Um, yeah. Well, you might not love this flat. Let's uh, let's find out. Impalement is definitely one of the worst ways to die. Yep. Well, we're going to talk about it uh, in gruesome detail <laughs> Great. in, I think, the second part of this episode. Uh, but for now, let me just tell you that Vlad was, in his own lifetime, famous for being the uh, three times, three different times, the voivode of Wallachia. What's a voivode of Wallachia? Well, Wallachia is a, uh, a region of modern-day Romania mm-hmm. that was a semi-independent kind of kingdom uh, during the 1400s that was just constantly being fought over. So you'd be um, the voivode, which is like the count, like a little tiny king. You'd be the voivode of this area for maybe a couple of years, and then someone would kill you, and they would take the throne, and then someone would kill them three years later. Um, so it, it, it was pretty chaotic, and loyalties were constantly shifting because in the West you had the Holy Roman Empire, mm-hmm. and in the East you had the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and the two were constantly launching crusades back and forth at each other, and the ruler next door might at any given time be pledging allegiance to the uh, Ottomans or to the Holy Roman Empire. So why was this kingdom so prized, even though it was small? Like, why are people killing each other over it constantly? It was just there. I think the people of (laughs) Wallachia and neighboring Transylvania just had the unfortunate distinction of being right in between Hungary and uh, the border states of the Ottoman Empire. Mm. But Vlad, the Vlad of, who is the subject of our... There's going to be several Vlads in this story. Uh, but the Vlad who is the subject of our podcast today is best known today as the inspiration for Count Dracula in Bram Stoker's Dracula. Certainly one of them. We talked about another one that might have been an inspiration, Mercy Brown. That's true. Uh, go back and listen to our New England Vampires episode. It's probably some great background there anyway, because we talked a little bit about Eastern European vampire kind of folklore beliefs, mm-hmm. which Bram Stoker also drew on when he was uh, uh, putting together Dracula. Stoker never actually acknowledged or recorded any connection with Vlad the Impaler. He didn't say like, and this is who I based this on. I mean, Dracula is a Dracula. But it's been pretty well documented that he was at least, he had been in the presence of and probably read books that mention Vlad. So like he probably was tangentially aware of him, but didn't know much about him. Might have just thought it was a cool name. Mm -hmm. Uh, We'll talk about it in depth when we talk about Bram Stoker in a couple of weeks. Um, But for now, I'll just say that Vlad's story is worth telling whether he is connected to Dracula, in fact, or not. um, Because it is a... Just a bloody soap opera, just full of twists and turns, and you could really turn this into a, just change the character names and turn this into a Game of Thrones spinoff. Nobody would bat an eye. For sure. Charlie Hunnam uh, from Sons of Anarchy and... Sorry, you said Charlie and I just immediately twitched uh, PTSD. I'm driving a robot now. Ah! Oh, God. Uh, Charlie Hunnam from Pacific Rim and Sons of Anarchy, etc. is obsessed with the idea of playing Vlad the Impaler in a biopic. That blonde British man? Yeah, and I, I know this because back when he was like flirting with movie stardom, I, mm. I think it's safe to say Charlie Hunnam's not doing that anymore. Um, I like Charlie Hunnam a lot, by the way. I just like seeing him. You want to no, share something with me? No, I just, I, I like seeing him. I, <laughs> like on, on Sons of Anarchy, I don't think that he's like traditionally good necessarily in the acting sense, but I like watching him do stuff. Because you, you think he's hot? No, I, not even. I just think he's cool. Okay. Well, interestingly enough, he was supposed to play the lead in Fifty Shades of Grey, which, uh, as we know, is based on a fan fiction about 
Twilight's Edward and Bella. So he would have played a version of a vampire uh, back in the day already. Uh, I, I once brought a barber a picture of Charlie Hunnam in the movie The Gentleman and said, give me this. And the barber was like, well, I can't get him for you, but I could do the hair the same. He said, he actually did say, well, I can't make you look like Charlie Hunnam. <laughs> I used to bring in a picture of um, Sarah Michelle Gellar from Buffy season two all throughout high school. And that was my haircut. Still the best hair I ever had. Uh, I love it. So back when Charlie was flirting with movie stardom and he was doing interviews about that crappy Robin Hood movie he was in. Yeah. And I, there was another like figure from history he did a movie about. And he couldn't go through a whole interview without mentioning, like shoehorning in a mention of Vlad the Impaler and how he was really hoping to get this project off the ground. Huh. And I think it would make a pretty good movie or maybe it'd be better as a miniseries. Um, but let's get into it. The Measure Carry... People weren't keeping super tight records around this time. No. And and the measure of how shaky the historical sources we're dealing with in terms of Vlad is that we don't know the exact date or year of his birth, but historians have backdated it to he was probably born sometime between 1428 and 1431. Fair enough. His dad was also named Vlad. Um, he's Vlad III, right? So Vlad II, Dracul... The void. So that's Vlad Dracul. This is Vlad Dracul. Uh, Vlad the Impaler is v- Vlad Dracula. Like little Dracul? It, it is, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's so cute. Dracul means the... Draculito. <laughs> Dracul means the dragon, and Dracula is son of the dragon. Mm, little dragon. Um, and Vlad Dracul was the voivode of Wallachia. Was the voivode of Wallachia before his son. Uh, not just before, though. Oh, he was a big guy uh, with a big mustache. Kind of picture Charles Bronson as Vlad too. Okay. Right around when he did Death Wish. And uh, so around the time of Vlad III's birth, Vlad II was not a voivode yet, and he wasn't Dracul yet. He was just the bastard son of the uh, previous voivode of Wallachia, Mircea I. Who was Vlad I? I think Vlad I was just an earlier voivode of Wallachia. I see, like a Henry the first, second, third, fourth, fifth situation. Exactly right. So a lot of times these guys would be in the same family, but they wouldn't necessarily be father son. Mm-hmm. As long as they both held the office, you'd have to differentiate with a number. Um, so after his dad died, Mercea had been voivode of Wallachia for eight years, which was pretty, pretty good, pretty long reign for this time in this region of the world. To not get murdered as well. Yes, exactly. Um, but he did die peacefully, I think, in 1418, and then his heir, so Vlad's older brother, uh, Michael, was killed by... <laughs> Michael? Yep. Oh, just wait. <laughs> Vlad and Michael. Oh, just wait. Because Michael was killed by Vlad and Michael's cousin, Dan the Second. Not Dan. Just, Not even Daniel? Just D-A-N. Jim. Jim the first. <laughs> and for the following 10 years, Wallachia was up for grabs between Dan... And Vlad's half-brother, Radu. There's See, gonna be, it's like Dan and Radu. There's going to be several Radus in this story. And several Dans, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Now, at the time, Vlad, Vlad II, Charles Bronson, had been kept close to Hungary's King Sigismund for like his whole life because he was sent there as a hostage when he was very young to ensure his father's loyalty to the king. It's a bit of a Ned Stark and Theon Greyjoy situation. Exactly right. And similar to that, it sounds like it was a pretty paternal relationship. 
So Vlad II had like a pretty cushy post in the army. He didn't have to actually do any fighting, but he had like an officer title. And in February of 1431, King Sigismund made him a first-class member of the Order of the Dragon. Wow. Which was a or- Ordo Dracul, which was a uh, chivalric order specifically dedicated to fighting the enemies of Christendom. And specifically, in this case, at this time, that was the looming threat of the Ottoman Empire. Mm-hmm. So for the rest of his life, he wore the order's dragon-shaped badge. And in Romania, he was called Vlad Dracul, Vlad the Dragon. Pretty dope. Yeah. And his sons would come to be called Dracula. The little dragons. Little dragons. Now, Sigismund didn't offer him, he was a big fan, apparently, of Vlad, but he didn't offer him any help taking back Wallachia. He was still a bastard, after all. And he actively supported Dan, too, in his, you know, uh, efforts in Wallachia. So Vlad wasn't getting the only thing he, you know, really did want from the king. Mm-hmm. But around this time, he was at least allowed to leave the capital. He took a house in Transylvania. And that's, Whoa! <laughs> uh, which was the neighboring, you know, kind of county. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where he and his wife very likely had Vlad, their second son. Now, in summer of 1431... A year or two after Vlad was born, Wallachia changed hands again. Because after trading the throne with Radu for over a decade, during which they, Radu and Dan II changed this same throne at least eight times. It was Radu, Dan, Radu, Dan, Radu, Dan, Radu, Dan. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dan II was finally overthrown and killed by another half-brother of Vlad's. These are big families, and Vlad's dad had a lot of bastard children. Mm-hmm. This was Alexander I Aldea, and he was supported by grumpy neighbors over in Moldavia, which was another uh, part of modern-day Romania, but also probably by the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire, because as soon as he took the throne, he immediately went and declared fealty to uh, the Sultan. Mm-hmm. Or he didn't have to go there, but he sent messengers and said, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm with you now. So the following year, the Sultan demanded the new voivode come and do homage to him in person. And because that's just what you do. Right. So Alexander Aldea went to go do that. Meanwhile, Vlad II was still hanging out in Transylvania, waiting for an opportunity. And as soon as Alexander left for Turkey, he rallied support from all of the Wallachian nobles who had been exiled to Transylvania, and they invaded uh, Wallachia. But the invasion failed. <laughs> And in 1435, uh, he he had kind of rebuilt his uh, forces. He had finally gotten permission from King Sigismund to raise an army and go after the the old family seat when Alexander Aldea fell ill and never recovered. Ah. So he died in autumn of 1436, and Vlad and the Hungarian army just moved right in and put Vlad on the throne. Easy peasy. Easy peasy. So now Vlad, remember, he's a member of the Ordo Dracul. Mm-hmm. He's not just going to honor this treaty that Alexander just signed with the enemy sultan. He's going to be, uh, be on the uh, the side of Christendom, right? Maybe. Well, he was, I think, planning on it, but then King Sigismund died oh. as soon as he got into Wallachia. And then, meanwhile, Sultan Murad II was invading Wallachia at the same time. And so Vlad had basically no choice but to travel to the court of Murad II and swear fealty. Mm-hmm. along with a yearly tribute of gold and a promise to jump in with his army. Just anything you need, Sultan. If you, <laughs> if you want to do anything, we'll help. Mm-hmm. And the Sultan was like, it's so funny you should mention that. I was just thinking about invading Hungary. You're old friends. Yeah, awkward. So, remember, the Hungarian king is dead. 
And his heir was Albert of Habsburg, who was already the Duke of Austria. And now, with the death of Sigismund, he was also the Duke of Luxembourg and the King of Hungary, Croatia, Bohemia, and King of the Romans. Which means he was the King of the Holy Roman Empire. He was not Holy Roman Emperor because the Pope never got around to putting a crown on his head. So he was like interim king? I mean, he was the king. It's just that only the Pope can make you emperor. So he would have been Holy Roman Emperor if he, lived he long had enough. the chance. Yes. Yeah. Um, so Albert ordered Vlad to use his forces to protect Transylvania from the Ottoman onslaught in the summer of 1438. And instead, Vlad met Murad II in Wallachia and gave the Sultan a guided tour around his grounds and then joined his Wallachians in the invasion of Hungary. He personally captured two cities uh, in Hungary, one of which Vlad apparently just talked them into surrendering. Like, listen, guys, these guys are crazy. They're gonna be, <laughs> it's going to be nasty if you, if you don't surrender. So I would just surrender. And uh, they started to lay siege to another one, got about eight days into a siege and went, eh, they get it. And they just left Hungary. They had a ton of loot and over 30,000 captives to bring back home um, with them. Wow. Yeah, I think they get it. So they uh, went back to Wallachia, and then the Ottomans left town back for their empire. And as soon as they left, Vlad was sending letters to King Albert, like, hey, really sorry about that whole thing. Do you want me to, like, release these nobles, or what are we doing next? Mm -hmm. Albert didn't want him to release those nobles. They were suspicious now. And he just, Albert uh, started ignoring Vlad II while making... Left him on red? Yeah, left him on red and started making loud proclamations to just anyone who wants to listen that... um. Basarab, who was a son of Dan II's, Basarab had been making a lot of noise about his claim to the Wallachian throne. And um, Albert was, was like, hey, just anybody who wants to know, Basarab can settle in Hungary if he wants to. Anywhere he wants, he's welcome. We like that guy. So in other words, giving a little tacit support to the enemy. Mm -hmm. um, so it's probably lucky for Vlad that King Albert died in October 1439. And his successor... King Vladislav III of Poland, who won't come up again in this story, um, made the talented general John Hunyadi, voivode of Transylvania. And Hunyadi will come up again, so we're going to cast him as, I don't know, Michael Fassbender? He's like a hard man, but a straight shooter. Mm. Yeah, that works. Um, he became the voivode of Transylvania in 1441, and the king said, you deal with this Vlad and the Ottoman situation. I don't know what to do. So Hunyadi... Seems to have used the soft touch in bringing Wallachia back on side uh, because he ordered that coins should be minted for Vlad in October of 1441. So he wasn't like coming and fighting him. Mm -hmm. A few weeks after he ordered those coins minted, he, you know, coins with Vlad's face on them. Yeah, I figured. Okay. A few weeks later, <laughs> he came to meet Vlad II face to face in Targovista, which was the capital of Wallachia, to invite him on a crusade against the Ottomans. Mm-hmm who Vlad had just been fighting with. Uh, and we don't have confirmation that Vlad complied. How do they even keep all of the, like, keep track of all of this? Like, who am I loyal to today? It's so confusing. Well, and when they're all lying to each other, it makes it really hard for historians to piece together <laughs> what the alliances were at any given time, because you don't right. know what's true and what's not. Yeah. So we don't know that Vlad came with them on this crusade, but when Hanyadi beat the Ottomans handily out of Transylvania the sultan definitely got suspicious of Vlad. Mm -hmm. And in 1442, he said, hey, come on back and do the homage thing again. Just demonstrate your loyalty. It'll be cool. <laughs> Just want to double check your homaging. Right, exactly. Properly. <laughs> and um, 
This time, Vlad was captured as soon as he got to the Ottoman capital of Idern. Fool me once, shame on me. Yeah. Are you? Which one is it? Uh, Fool me once, can't get fooled again. Can't fooled again. <laughs> now, Vlad would be released before the end of that same year. But a lot had changed for Vlad and for the outside world before the end of 1442. Columbus sailed the ocean. That was 50 years later. <laughs> I know. <laughs> As part of the conditions of Vlad's release, he was never allowed to support the enemies of the Sultan again. He had to pay up on his back annual tribute. He had stopped paying a few years before. And he was required to give 500 Wallachian boys to be trained for use in the Sultan's army. Mm-hmm. Oh, and your two younger sons, the one you brought here with you, the ones you brought here with you, yeah, leave them here too. So basically what he had to do as a kid. Exactly right. Um, meanwhile, on the outside, Vlad had left his oldest son, Mircea, in charge of the shop while he was gone. But as soon as they'd gotten the boss under lock and key, the Ottomans obviously were invading Wallachia again. Yeah. And so John Hunyadi, old Michael Fassbender, had to step in to repel the invasion. And then he just went ahead and said, well, forget these, all these Vlads then. And he just put, Basar, he put Basarab, the son of Dan, in as the voivode of Wallachia. Basarab, son of Dan. Basarab, son of Dan. <laughs> as the new voivodes. This is exactly what we didn't want, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but somehow, and this is where the records fail us, Vlad ended up back on the throne sometime between March and September of 1443. So I think he probably just lobbied John Hunyadi and Basarab got on Hanyadi's nerves. That's my guess. Um, but he was back in as a voivode of Wallachia while John Hanyadi went from 1443 to 44 and waged war against the Ottomans. What's Mercea doing at this point? Is he alive? His son? Yeah, he's alive. Okay. And he's hanging out, hanging out with his dad at court. Uh, there's also two other sons at this point. You've got Vlad, the middle one, and uh, Radu. Another Radu is the youngest son. Mm-hmm. Radu would come to be known as Radu the Handsome, but that wouldn't be for many years. Um, so during John Hunyadi's, quote, long campaign in the Ottoman Empire, Vlad II did his best to stay neutral. And that was partly because the Sultan was promising to release his two sons if he just stayed out of it. Mm-hmm. But eventually he was pressured to send in a few thousand Wallachians to help fight the Ottomans. But after the Crusaders' disastrous defeat in 1444, the Christians were all sent packing. Um, Vlad seems to have ordered John Hunyadi captured as his army retreated through Wallachia, and then he wouldn't let him go until the king threatened to declare war. Okay. And the reasons for this are disputed. It might be, I mean, the, you know, the rumor is that he was just going to hand him over to the Sultan, which would make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also suggested that he maybe held Hunyadi responsible for the failed crusade, uh, or maybe the Wallachian soldiers just arrested him by mistake because they didn't know who he was. But that feels it's like a Michael stretch. Michael Fassbender, you don't know? No, I know. I mean, <laughs> really. You seen those X-Men movies? That guy, he has a, he has a gravitas. <laughs> X-Men of all things. So he gave, uh, he gave Magneto precious gifts <laughs> and an Medals. Escort. Yeah, of all kinds. <laughs> and an escort to the uh, Hungarian border. Now, Vlad himself, I don't know if it was a, you know, trying to make good on Hunyadi's promise or a trying to show Hunyadi up, but Vlad would appoint his son, Mircea, to lead his own campaign against uh, the Ottomans in 1445. And Mircea and his guys captured two cities 
and managed to rescue 11,000 re rebel Bulgarian refugees from behind enemy lines before an early winter set in and forced them to, to come on back. There's lots of, they keep calling these crusades or campaigns, but they're really raids. They, they'll go for like a couple of months max and then they'll go, oh, we got to go home. It's too cold now. And they just take whatever they have and they go. It's basically what people used to do for a very long time until, I guess, international travel became more common and you had to have more of these international bonds, probably in what? <sighs> I think after the colonization of America, I would say. Because um, before that, you would just fight another country, try to get some land, and then they would fight back, and they'd try to get some land, and it would just go on and on and on for centuries. So Vlad II did think this would be his children's death doing this campaign. Now, he wrote in a letter that year to the king that his children would be, quote, butchered for Christian peace so that me and my country can be subjects of the kingdom of Hungary. Mm. In fact, the boys were treated really well by the Ottomans. Um, they were tutored in science, philosophy, and the arts, and trained in fighting and horseback riding, and became kind of court favorites. They were really almost more than mascots, but, you know, sort of mascots and functionaries. They actually had jobs at court. So do we have to cast these uh, three Dracul boys? Uh, Mersea, I, spoiler alert, I don't think we need to cast Mersea. Oh, all right. Uh, he who will be not be appearing in this film. Vlad Tepish. I mean, um, I don't know. You've seen the one po uh, portrait of him, right? Yeah. I mean, I would think of uh, Nandor from what we do in the shadows. Yes. That's <laughs> but pretty, he's so silly. It's pretty spot on, except that he's so silly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Vlad the Impaler doesn't seem to have been that silly. Mm -hmm. Although the mustache is, is funny. Yeah. Jason Sudeikis. <laughs> no. <laughs> Old Ted Lasso himself. No, he's too sweet. Um, and then Radu is Radu the Handsome, so he just has to be like, like an Oscar Isaac. I think he might be like a Jason Momoa type. Oh, thick boy. Sure, I mean he's like yeah, he's like a like a really famed warrior. Okay, Jason Momoa. I he's get very it. Very handsome. I think it's I think it's a Jason Momoa. <laughs> and so he's got to have a brother who is. Um, let's give Dev Patel a big old mustache. And, oh. and call I don't think his eyes are big He was very good enough, in The Green Knight. Oh, fantastic. Oh, he's Greek in Slumdog Millionaire. I love Dev Patel. I haven't seen that movie in forever, but I think, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, love, I'm, sure, I'm sure he was. I love Dev Patel. <laughs> I haven't thought of Dev Patel since I watched The Green Knight, but he is great. Mm -hmm. um, Dev Patel as Vlad Dracula. <laughs> Only on Ain't It Scary. So at this point, Charles Bronson, Vlad II, was getting um, in hot water with the Hungarian king, to say the least. And um, maybe he was trying to, you know, win some favor back with this sudden show of fervor with this crusade that he thought was going to kill his sons. Um, it was not enough to convince anyone of Vlad II's loyalty. And so in Well, I wouldn't be convinced either. He's a... He's a bitch. He's an obvious... He's uh, a wheeler dealer. He goes the where the wind's blowing, doesn't he, Carrie? In no loyalty with this man. In 1447, John Hunyadi settled another pretender to the Wallachian throne in Transylvania. So uh, just like the king did a few years ago, John Hunyadi goes, hey, this guy's great. I love him. Everyone just notice. He says he deserves the Wallachian throne. I'm not putting him there, but I am letting him settle right here, right next door. Mm -hmm. So everybody just look. Uh, this guy's name. Uh, this was another cousin of Vlad's, by the way. It's a really big family. And it's I, like your family. <laughs> <laughs> They're all named Dan, <laughs> just like your family. <laughs> um, 
yeah, I mean, we're more Irish, but for sure. Uh, now, this cousin of Vlad's was named Vladislav. Another Vladislav, not the Polish one. Correct. Okay. Um, that was a king. I don't know. This is just another Vladislav. Um, so his name just was... Just a loose Vladislav. His name was Vladislav, but he also went by, and I shit you not, Carrie, Dan. Fucking... It is your family. But we're going to call him Vladislav to avoid confusion. Okay. Um, so later that same year, John Hunyadi and Vladislav took a Hungarian army across the border into Wallachia. And Vlad II and his eldest son, Mircea, the only one he had left, uh, were forced to flee their capital of Targa Vista. Well, Vlad fled the capital. Mircea mm. tried to flee the capital, but he was captured by the city's Saxon elite. The Saxons are a, a German people, and they aren't fans at this time of the Slavs in general, and um, certainly weren't fans of... I mean, of I don't, at this time, uh, I think it was a pretty extensive time. Yes. That they weren't fans. For sure. But but for sure right now. Sure. And they weren't big fans of Vlad and his uh, family in particular. So anyway, uh, Mircea was captured by the Saxon nobles of the city. And they apparently blinded him with a red hot poker. Oh, God. Before burying him alive. Jesus. So that's pretty brutal. Yeah. So he, he died. Yeah. Uh, Vlad was captured and executed shortly thereafter. He was fleeing through some... Charles Bronson, Vlad? Yes. Oh, wow. Vlad the they finally seven. got him. He was fleeing through some swamps when uh, Hunyadi and Vladislav caught up to him and captured him, and he was executed. I don't know if his head was cut off or if he was shot, but it would have been one of those. Probably the head. Did they have guns? Yeah. 1400s, they really? Had artillery, and they had... Uh, they had um, um, I don't know if they had muskets yet, but they had guns. So I guess you wouldn't be shot in an execution. <laughs> With a cannon. <laughs> no, but, you know, I think they probably had uh, like blunderbusses. I think there yeah, are hand. Yeah, I have. think there are firearms. Mm-hmm. After Vlad was captured and executed, Hunyadi made Vladislav the voivode of Wallachia. Okay. Now, meanwhile, Vlad the Third, the one who would be the impaler, mm-hmm. was probably between sixteen and nineteen years old at this point, and he was living in the Ottoman Empire. He's lived with them at this point. Almost longer than he lived back in uh, Wallachia or Transylvania or any of it. Romania. So when Hanyadi and Vladislav launched yet another campaign against the Ottomans in September of 1448, it's not like Vlad III was there to defend the Ottoman Empire, but he took a page out of the old man's playbook and he burst into Wallachia while the Lord was away to take back his home. And he did it at the head of an Ottoman army. Twist. Big twist. And so Dracula, for the first time, became the voivode of Wallachia. And he was forced to flee back to Turkey by December, just a couple of months later. Mm -hmm. You know, once Hanyadi and uh, Vladislav came home, there was no no holding it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And from there on out, Vlad lived more or less in exile, first in Turkey and then in neighboring Moldavia, which was one of these places that was constantly being a Flanders, a Normandy. Yes. Well, uh, John Hunyadi first refused to make him like even next in line for the Wallachian throne. He was like, listen, I don't have to be the guy, but if this guy dies, can I be the guy? And he was like, no. I don't know. This whole family is not trustworthy whatsoever. And that's probably why Hunyadi, Fassbender, uh, refused to uh, make him the next in line. And then forbade the local burgers of Transylvania from even giving him a place to crash. The burgers? Oh, yeah. That's what the nobles were called. They're kind of the landowners. I see. I'm hungry. 
Um, we don't know anything about Vlad's life from 1452 to 1456 after he gets kicked out of the country. Straight chilling. But sometime in the summer of 1456, Hungarian troops supported Vlad's invasion of Wallachia. And during this invasion, he apparently killed Vladislav, his father's, you know, effectively the guy who killed his dad, in single combat. Also his cousin, yes, right? Yes, second cousin. His dad's cousin. They're all cousins. So... Obviously, the relationship had soured between Vladislav and his old patron, John Hunyadi, and Hunyadi had now, for some reason, gotten back in Vlad III's corner. I think these guys who came in as voivodes just always turned out to be shady. <laughs> I think it's, you know, if you... Well, if you have to, like, kill people to get the job... Right, if you want the job, It's then kind of like a cheater, like, well, one's a cheater. It's kind of like a president. Yikes. Um, so, Vlad the Voivode. Uh, this was Vlad's second chance to rule, but it would be the first one long enough to get anything at all done, and we are going to get into um, some of his public policy when we come back, and that means, Carrie, we're going to discuss a lot of impalements. It sounds like his policy was just sticking sharp things at people's butts. A lot of impalements. <laughs> introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Welcome back. When last we left you, we had uh, covered the life of Vlad II Tepish, Vlad Dracul, who's the father of Vlad the Impaler, this week's subject. Uh, Carrie, we had just gotten to uh, Vlad III, Vlad, who will be Vlad the Impaler, really coming into his own and uh, getting his first crack at really ruling uh, Wallachia. Could you... Um we went through a lot of uh, names, a lot of Dans, a lot of... Uh, a lot of the same name. A lot of kings and voivodes in the first uh, uh, part. Can you summarize for our listeners briefly what, what, what has happened briefly. so far? Oh, Jesus Christ. <sighs> okay, so Vlad II started his life more or less as like a hostage to the Hungarians? Yeah. And um, he was treated pretty well. Theon Greyjoy situation. Um, hmm. Then there was a bunch of uh, fighting between the Ottomans and the others. Mm -hmm. The Christians, yeah, the Holy Roman Empire and and associated countries. And so the kingship 
slash voivodeship of the associated countries or counties or whatever went back and forth a bunch. There was a bunch of backstabbing. Um, Michael Fassbender, who, John, um, he's involved. He's kind of the big cheese at this point. John Hunyadi. Well, he's the voivode of Transylvania. So he's like, he's king shit in the next town over, which is a little more stable than Wallachia. Right. And Wallachia is where the Vlads are from. Um, so it's a bunch of backstabbing, you know, Vlad too is like on top a few times, he's imprisoned a few times, or he's just not doing well. Uh, his son is his like first eldest son, Mercea, he who will not be appearing in this film, was brutally killed, pokers in the eyes, buried alive. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. He has a son named Vlad Dracula, which means the little dragon, which is adorable. Uh, Vlad Dracula's cousin, Vladislav, was made the voivode of Wallachia. Yeah. Um, Shit happened that we don't really understand because it's kind of like a missing page in history sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And at this point, Vlad Trace, Vlad Dracula, is now the voivode. Yes. Of Wallachia. That's true. And it is summer of 1456 as he starts... Um, ah, the summer of love. The summer of love. And uh, for Vlad, the first order of business in the summer of love was some good old-fashioned purging of all enemies and possible claimants to the throne. Hmm. Uh, he was recorded as saying around this time, when a man or prince is strong and powerful, he can make peace as he wants to. But when he is weak, a stronger one will come and do what he wants to him. And this is Dev Patel with a little mustache. Yes. Well, big mustache. Pretty big mustache. Oh, yeah. Thick mustache. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Thick and kind of dangly, too. Mm. Uh, So hundreds or maybe thousands of people were executed in Targa Vista and environs in just the first couple of weeks after Vlad's reign started as he first purged. Draining the swamp. Draining the swamp, exactly. Uh, He first purged all the landowners who had been involved in the murder of his father and brother, because a lot of them were. Mm -hmm. And then he moved on, as you always do, to those he suspected of plotting to murder him. And then he moved on to any potential claimants to power, which meant a lot of, you know, uh, lingering family members and stuff. Bastard children. Yes. Bastards of uh, uh, previous voivodes and things. Um, Gendries. Just some others who got caught up in the crossfire. The Byzantine historian Chaka Kondalis, I'm doing my best with that. Chaka Khan? Yeah, Chaka Khan is actually a historian of the Byzantine Empire. Wow. No, no a, a historian in the Byzantine Empire named, it's a big Greek name, Chaka... Chaka Kondalis. Chaka Kondalis, yeah. He said that Vlad III, quote, quickly effected a great change and utterly revolutionized the affairs of Wallachia just from the sheer amount of wealth that he moved from the executed nobles to his own friends and retainers. Like, he totally changed the economy. Oh, absolutely. And he also started sending the yearly customary tribute to the sultan, while also swearing loyalty to Hungary. So, um, you know... Typical Vlad. Like father, like son. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately for him, John Hunyadi, who seems to have become a friend at this point, died later that summer. Ah, they got him. And his son, Ladislaw Hanyadi. Mm-hmm. John and... La- like, you can't have two exotic names or, like, two basic-ass names in one family. It has to be, like, Ladislaw and John. John. And uh, Ladislaw was... 
eager to make a splash. I'm, I'm thinking of Nicholas Holt here as kind of... Oh, uh, in The Great. Yes. Uh, yes, but not st- he's not st- super stupid. Well, maybe he is. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Ladislaw ran around telling all the nobles of Transylvania that Vlad had no intention of staying loyal to Hungary, which, I don't know, did he kind of have a point? He, he Who knows? That bitch ain't loyal. Vlad is paying the sultan. His dad switched sides however many times. Yeah, I wouldn't trust him as far as I could throw him. And so Ladislaw ordered... I could probably de- throw Dev Patel fairly far, though. Yeah, I think, well, at least a couple feet, sure. <laughs> as far as devs go. <laughs> and, uh... Ladislaw ordered the nobles of Transylvania to support Vladislav's brother. Remember Vladislav, who went by Dan sometimes? Mm-hmm. Son of Dan too. Guess mm-hmm. what his brother's name was? I don't know. Tim? Dan, the yeah. third. Mm-hmm. Uh, Little Dan, like in your family. Yes. Uh, so this new Hunyadi asked the Transylvanian nobles to support Dan the third in his new bid for the Wallachian throne. Uh, but then... The now King Ladislav V of Hungary, not totally other, there's a new person. He's a new king. We're never going to hear about him again. Okay. But the, the current king at this point got sick of this new Hunyadi's bullshit. He was like, you're making too much noise. You're causing fights. There's no fights. And he was actually just taken to Hungary and executed. Damn. In 1457. Wow. This caused, I mean, he was a big deal noble with a powerful family. So this caused a full-on revolt in Transylvania and Wallachia. And Vlad Dracula, Littlefinger style, used the chaos as a ladder as mm-hmm. he assisted one of one of many friends of his named Stephen. <laughs> Shut up. Stephen? Yeah, Stephen of Moldavia. This is Stephen III of Moldavia. He has a lot of Stevens, though. Um, <laughs> he assisted this particular Stephen in seizing the Moldavian throne. And uh, while he was at it, he found a little time for himself to... Uh, he and Stephen also broke into Transylvania to raid and plunder some Saxon villages there. I told you, the Slavs and the Saxons, not big fans of one another. Yeah, for obvious reasons. Yeah, so it's said that Vlad... Uh, remember, they're not like at war. He's just kind of doing stuff in the middle of all this chaos because he thinks he can get away with it. He apparently had dozens of Saxon men, women, and children carried off from this village and then executed and impaled. So where did he get the impaling thing? Because he, he starts off, he comes in real hot with the impaling. Oh, let's, yeah, let's get into it. But what, first, just to put a coda on that, um, the eventual peace negotiations for the revolt that was tearing up the countryside had the Transylvanian nobles agree to help expel this latest Dan from Wallachia. And uh, Transylvania and Wallachia agree, had a, like a fair trade agreement that they signed that basically said, your people can come into our trading posts and uh, trade fairly with our guys and, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. More on that later. Uh, I don't know. Oh, if, thank God. I don't know if Vlad stuck to the letter or, or the spirit of the agreement. Um, but about the impaling. It's the most famous thing about Vlad. Besides, well, he's not like Vlad the Chill. Right. It's right in the name. Not Vlad the Handsome like his brother. And uh, it does seem to have been his preferred method for dispatching prisoners of war, and enemies of the state, uh, Mm -hmm. of all kinds. So how did he get there? So, uh, there are two types of impalement, Carrie. Uh, Well, two main types. There's, uh, you know, there's variants on both of these, but you've mainly got longitudinal impalement. (laughs) This is not how I thought this was going to go. Yeah. um, Straight up. Up the tuchus. Up the tuchus and off till morning. Transversal impalement, which would be through the belly or the back, and then you're kind of 
you know, crowd surfing on the on the stake. I don't think they would think of it that way. It's certainly not as fun, and you're never getting to the stage that way. I'll tell you that. Um, so the tr- probably the better way to to be impaled. L- longitude? Uh, you mean transversally? Yeah, through the stomach rather than yeah. This this all one the way bad. up. This one seems bad. Um, longitudinal impalement was practiced by the Ottoman Empire at this time. Practice makes perfect. And it's so it's a sure thing that Vlad saw this being done in person to punish criminals or just to terrify rebels into submission throughout his childhood in like soft captivity. And there is some, I'm not sure which way he liked to do it because there's some artwork that shows Vlad's victims being impaled transversally. And uh, there's some that, but most of them show them being impaled. uh, What I would think of as the Ottoman fashion, uh, which is, you know, that's the one I've definitely seen more of. So what they do carry in all of my, you know, artistic perusings of paintings of impalements. Sometimes, if the, uh, the these stakes were usually about as big around as a man's arm, and pointed at the top, of course, and the stake would either be shoved directly into the yes butt or vagina, uh. or to make it easier. What they would do a lot of the time is take a razor or a similar blade and just cut your whole, um, what's the, what's the polite word? Your taint. (laughs) That's the polite word. Your grundle. They would just, they would just (laughs) cut you there and then immediately cram in some paste or moss or something to stop some of the bleeding because, you know, you don't want to make a mess. And then they would take this stake, about at least eight feet of stake and insert it into the hole. Into the taint hole? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you're going to hit resistance at a certain point, Carrie, as you're pushing this into a person's body. So then they would get a mallet or a hammer and just whack at the other end of the, of the stake. Like butthole croquet? <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, not a wicket to be seen here. Uh, it is, it sticky is just... Sticky wicket for sure. Oh, Jesus. It's gonna, yeah, trust me. It's going to get sticky. That's Why what the... make... Okay, I'm not trying to be crude, but why make another hole? Well, because... What's, what's the point? Well, you'll notice the, I mean, you know, the, the vagina and the anus are both not directly holes at the bottom of your body going up. Sure, but I feel like making a new hole at the taint is going to hit the same amount of resistance. You're still putting a sharp stick in there. I don't think it's going to be the same amount of resistance. I think it's going to be a little easier this way. And it's a very sharp stick. Okay. So they would continue whacking this thing with a hammer until the sharp end poked out through the neck or the ribs or the breastbone of the prisoner. Or sometimes the mouth, right? Because I've seen renderings where they're like... I would guess that that's rarer. You know what I mean? (laughs) I think it's good stagecraft. Yeah, it's more dramatic, I guess. Um, But I I think most of the time it's going to pierce the neck before it comes out of your mouth. Yeah. the stake is then, of course, lifted and stuck into the ground, and you just hang there for as long as it takes you to die. Now, if you're really lucky, you might die, obviously, as the stake is being pounded through your bowels. Um, but if the stake followed your spine really closely, it might avoid puncturing any major organs. Oh, God. And so some people were known to hang on these stakes for up to six or eight days slowly dying in the sun of... I mean, if it's eight days, you're dying of thirst at that point. You're not even bleeding to death. Again, not trying to be crude, 
But wouldn't you be sliding down, you know, with gravity over time and like reach the ground with your feet? I think they probably do. Yeah. So you're just standing there with the stake in you? Yeah. And sometimes if they, uh, I, I don't know that Vlad ever did this, but I know sometimes with impalements, if you wanted to extra punish the person, you wouldn't push it through all the way and you would put something, the stake wouldn't be totally sharpened so that it was like, you know, it wouldn't puncture through the, the end and you could just hang the person there uh, so they wouldn't die as fast. Um, Had, <laughs> the, did the, anyone ever try to pull the stake up and kind of waddle away? <laughs> it's kind of a reverse stilts just sticking, <laughs> sticking out of the top Jesus, there. that's horrible. Uh, My God. I can only joke about this because it's just so far away from like any experience that we know of yeah. recently. So well, it's like, it seems so of. foreign, not country-wise, but just like to... Our reality. Yeah. I bet people are being impaled. I mean, I'm sure someone's being impaled somewhere, but it it's not it's not like out for everyone to see. Well, in fifteenth century Wallachia, they were definitely being impaled. It is And a, they were definitely out to sea. Even by Vlad's like biggest fans at the time, everybody agrees that he loved impaling people. Uh, and he took relish in this Ottoman tradition, I guess, and just brought it home in a big, big way. <laughs> you guys see this? This is great. Um, there's one story that some monks, I don't know what they had initially done to piss off Vlad, but like the, he was mad at some monks. And the monks kind of stoically told him that they didn't need his approval because they would get their reward in heaven. And so Vlad said, well, I'll help you get there. <laughs> I, got, I got your fucking reward. Right here, pal. I mean, pretty much. Vlad said, oh, I'll help you get there. And he had both of the monks impaled in front of him, just like on the spot. And as they were being impaled, apparently their donkey got upset. They had ridden there on a donkey. Don't tell me that. No, I don't like that part. The donkey started to bray. And so then Vlad had the animal impaled as well, just right next to the two monks. It wasn't just uh, Christian monks who he treated this way. Another story has uh, Turkish envoys, guys from the Ottoman Empire, coming to pay their respects, but refusing to take their turbans off because they weren't allowed to religiously. And uh, Vlad said he would, quote, strengthen their ancient custom by having the turbans nailed to their head. Did they die? I, I, it actually doesn't. I've never seen whether they died. Probably. Uh, God, okay. Yeah. Why why was he why he so mean? Well, is that just what you had to do to like be powerful in, in this place and time because not ev- not every ruler was like this. You know what's interesting? Uh, he is he has through various times in history been painted in different lights mm-hmm. in Romanian like folklore and stuff. But for a lot of Romanian history, he's been considered a national like folk hero. And the attitude of peasants and stuff, even at the time, in Wallachia, seems to have been like, yeah, it's it's brutal what you have to do to get control around here. Or, you know, it's brutal, but hey, the, it's law and, or- law and order. He was a law and order candidate. But plenty of people got control in Wallachia without impaling a bunch of guys. Yeah, but... Um Apparently, the crime rates went way down. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about it in a little bit. When, when, once the printing press uh, uh, really starts firing off some missives about Vlad, we'll, we'll talk about his reputation. First, we have some more politics to talk, because in 1458, there was yet another new king of Hungary. And this one was Matthias Corvinus, who became Matthias I 
and he was the younger son of John Hunyadi. And just to keep like a facial similarity and to keep casting these Hunyadis, I'm going to say this one's Vecna. Uh, it's Jamie Campbell Bauer. Yes. Okay. Oh, he could definitely. I want Michael Fassbender, Nicholas Holt, and, and Jamie Campbell Bauer to be like a twisted little royal family in something. Here it is. Okay. I'm giving it to you. Um, so Vecna ordered the Transylvanian and Saxon nobles to keep the peace and not start shit with Vlad anymore. Mm-hmm. And he ordered Vlad to do the same. And for a while, everybody listened. Mutually assured destruction. Yes. But then the following year, 1459, some Transylvanian Saxons apparently confiscated some steel from a Wallachian merchant and they hadn't paid for it. Mm-hmm. Well, you know Vlad the Impaler. He's going to be cool about this, right? So what kind of a trade negotiation do you think he opened up here? I think he negotiated a sharp stick up someone's taint. In response, uh, Vlad, and this is from a letter that Basarab himself, Basarab, the son of Dan II that we mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. uh, from a letter that he wrote to the King of Hungary. He said that Vlad, quote, captured all the merchants of Brasov and Terra Barse who had gone in peace to Wallachia and took all of their wealth. But he was not satisfied only with the wealth of these people, but he imprisoned them and impaled them, 41 in all. Nor were these people enough. He became even more evil and gathered 300 boys from Brasov and Tarabarse that he found in Wallachia. Of these, he impaled some and burned others. See, the thing with guys like this, like uh, Basarab or, in or with Vlad? Well, just in history, um, like Vlad, is that, you know, this. It's like extensive, like too cruel, like doesn't need to be this cruel well it, it it causes fear and it gets you power for a certain time but it pisses a lot of people off more and more over time to the point where you get yours in the end we're gonna have to do a podcast or potentially a sort ser- of a Qaddafi situation yes we're gonna have to do a pod and that is the danger side of it uh, mm-hmm. we're gonna have to do a podcast or maybe even a whole series on uh, Genghis Khan Genghis Khan Genghis Khan <laughs> Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan. Yeah, I've listened to too much Dan Carlin to say Genghis Khan now. You've listened to too much Dan Carlin. But um, we'll have to do a a story on him. But you know, the Mongols... There's never enough. He's the best. The Mongols were building mountains of skulls, you know, and literally slaughtering entire cities. And that was their tactic, because if you surrendered, they would be really nice to you. And if you didn't surrender immediately, if you put up any fight, they would kill everyone. Sure. But the problem is that people coming in peace are still being impaled or having their turbans nailed to their head. So there's no well, that's reason. What, that's what Basarab claims. I think these people might have st- stolen that steel or whatever. You know what I mean? Not the, the guys who got the turbans nailed to their heads. They came oh, in peace. No, it was their religion. And he was like, you know what? Fuck you and your donkey. <laughs> and then the donkey you rode in on. That was the monks. Was whatever. I'm he, so bitter about it. He definitely says fuck donkeys. There's no question about that. Um, donkeys are sweet. So after this... After he did his little, you know, a few more impalements in the countryside, this guy cannot stop impaling Transylvanian nobles. And it, and it, it gets him in trouble, you know? It gets, you're going to get yourself into trouble. That's what I said. So King Matthias uh, Vecna mm-hmm. supported Dan III again in yet another invasion of Wallachia in summer of 1460. I've had enough of Vlad. I've had enough of all of the Vlads. Get him out. Yeah. I mean, yeah. But Vlad repelled this invasion cut off Dan the Third's head 
and then invaded the suburbs of the southern Transylvanian city of Brasov and apparently impaled all of the men and women he could get his hands on. Just everyone he could capture uh, was impaled. You got to make a point. Did he ever impale children? Yes. Uh, I'll give some detail on that a little later. Um, Oh, great. Something to look forward to. He was apparently particularly fond of uh, impaling mothers with their uh, feeding babies. Now, in the case of Brasov, Transylvania, the city wasn't allowed to return to normal after all this impaling he did until all of, I guess in years past, when Vlad did his big purges when he came to power, a lot of those nobles had run to Brasov. And these are some of the same guys who are leading all these coups against him, right? Um, So the city wasn't allowed to return to normal until all of the refugees from Wallachia who had escaped to Brasov were either expelled from the city or killed on the spot. And after all that, in a speech in Brasov the following month, Vlad addressed the people of the city as, quote, my brothers and friends. Fuck off. The nerve. (laughs) Um, He gave a similar treatment to the Transylvanian cities of Amlas and Fargaras to punish the locals there who just perceived as being fans of Dan, you know? Okay. Now, it does seem with a new king on the throne, Vlad was willing to reconsider his loyalties again. He wasn't quite as worried about the sultan now that he had a strong king in Hungary, and he stopped paying his yearly tribute in 1459 and 1460 and 1461. And meanwhile, he opened negotiations with King Matthias about bringing their partnership closer together. Hey, maybe you want Even get... though he had killed little Dan? Yeah, I, listen, I killed, so I killed little Dan. But hey, you and I, you and I have a lot in common. We could get, get a crusade going. You want to get a crusade going? I know you love a crusade. Yeah. Now the Sultan, Mehmed II at this point, had spies everywhere, obviously. And he was starting to get suspicious about this lack of uh, fealty payments. So at a certain point... At this point, in fact, in 1461, Mehmed took a page from his father's book and sent an envoy to order Vlad to come to the new Ottoman capital at Constantinople to uh, pay homage. It's the homage thing again. How'd that go? Well, meanwhile, he also sent word to an allied nobleman to capture Vlad as soon as he had crossed over into Ottoman territory. And maybe Vlad got wind of this trickery, Carrie, or maybe he just made that story up. And there was no plot with the nobleman right across the border. But either way, he had the envoy and the accused noble captured and impaled. And he headed out on a crusade against the Ottomans. Well, Sean, there's a quote that is very relevant in this situation and in many of these historical situations. And it comes from The Wire. And uh, it's it goes something a little bit like, if you come at the king, you best not miss. Best not, Carrie. And they came at Vlad and they missed. Yep. And he's not a guy that you want to come at and miss. No, no. And More so, than maybe any other I've ever heard of. Now, the first, yeah, he's a, an implacable foe, Carrie. Um, the first major, like, bump in the road, if you wanted to go to Constantinople with an army, was the fortress of Girgu. G-I-U-G-G-I-U-R-G-I-U. So Girgu is the best I can do with that. <laughs> um, supposedly... Vlad con- conquered the fortress just by giving an order in perfect Turkish to open the gates. And the guards were like, okay. And then... Uh, Sounds legit. Oh, no! It's a bunch of Romanians, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, the guards obeyed and opened the doors, and his boys just rushed in and did the rest. 
the army would proceed behind enemy lines to ravage villages up and down the Danube. They only bothered to stop and ask for help or even, you know, inform King Matthias of Hungary that they were doing this. Uh, when Vlad was bragging that, quote, 23,884 Turks and Bulgarians had been killed at his command. Wow, he got real specific on those stats. Yeah, they would keep, I mean, these numbers are always inflated, but they would try to keep good records of how <laughs> many people they killed in a fight. But you, you Don't, not his birthday, but. Um, no, <laughs> yeah, we have no idea on that, but we know 23,884. Uh I don't know how the Romanians did it, but I know throughout history they've counted by cutting off hands or scalps or penises. Great. So that's fun. Is it? <laughs> um, the Ottomans didn't take kindly to 23,884 of their countrymen being killed in an invasion. And the Sultan sent a counterattack with the biggest army that had ever entered Wallachia, probably. 150,000 men. Mm -hmm. The rest of the armies in this story are all like 4,000 men, 6,000 men. This is 150,000 Ottomans. And standing at the head of this army, in command, was Vlad's younger brother, Radu. <gasps> Jason Momoa Twist. himself. The handsome. He had become a leading figure at court and was the Sultan's pick for the next voivode of Wallachia. Wow, okay. And he'll be known to history, of the course, tea. as Radu the Handsome. Vlad was clearly outnumbered here. I mean, by a lot. And his own brother is coming against him. And he adopted a scorched earth policy as his, oh, ar shocking. As his army retreated across uh, Wallachia and toward Targovista. Remember, that's their capital. Uh, one night, he had basically no other options, so he took like just his bodyguard, basically and broke into the camp of the sultan in an attempt to just, like, cut the head of the snake, kind of. He wanted to murder... The sultan was leading this army himself, which mm -hmm. is a big balls move. And uh, he wanted to just kill the sultan in camp, and uh, unfortunately, he got the wrong camp. <laughs> so he managed to kill some viziers, and then that led into some skirmishing and fighting. They took a lot of prisoners, but, you know, even tens of thousands of Ottoman prisoners was nothing compared to the uh, 150,000 coming. And he was—he must have been a very good strategic fighter. Yes. Uh, I Plus, think he wasn't he taught by the Ottomans. He was. Yeah. So, so he, knows he kind their, of he kind of knows their their ways. Exactly. And there are some really bold strokes. The the thing where he tried to kill the Sultan is known as the night attack on Targovista, and um, there's like a pretty like he almost got him. It's just that he picked the wrong camp. Uh, well, okay. But like he he handily won the battle and then had to run away. <laughs> I mean, I almost live in Malibu, but I don't. <laughs> what do you mean? Nonetheless, they did make it off with a lot of prisoners. But they weren't going to give, win the war, and so they abandoned Targo Vista. And by the time Radu, the Sultan, and the Ottoman army entered the city, it was completely deserted, but Vlad had left behind a gift. Close to 20,000 Ottoman prisoners executed and raised on stakes. 20,000? A forest of the impaled, Carrie. That's some Game of Thrones shit. From another Byzantine historian. That's so many people. The That's so many stakes. The Sultan's army entered into the area of the impalements, which was 17 stades long and seven stades wide. There were large stakes there on which, as it was said, about 20,000 men, women, and children had been <sighs> spitted, 
quite a sight for the Turks and the Sultan himself. Oh, yeah? The Sultan was seized with amazement and said it was not possible to, to deprive of his country a man who had done such great deeds, who had such a diabolical understanding of how to govern this realm and its people. And he said that a man who had done such things was worth much. The rest of the Turks were too dumbfounded when they saw the multitude of men on the stakes. This Sultan's a dumbass. There were infants, too, affixed to their mm. mothers on the stakes, and birds had made their nests in the entrails. So that's your dose of horror for the week. Man, and I thought that weird lobotomy thing that happened in Baldur's Gate was the worst of it. <laughs> Jesus. You're talking about with the, with the ice pick and the tadpole? The foley. The, the, the sound effects. My God. I... Uh, We've talked, you've seen me watch horror movies. I am not squeamish whatsoever. That was gross as hell. Maybe it was because it's a character that you were playing, so it was kind of like it was you, but it was like, oh, it was so gross. You couldn't believe I wasn't going to save scum it. And you were like, yep, so that happened. I was like, what? He, why would you not undo that? That was insane. Uh, no spoilers for Baldur's Gate 3, but I ended up with a pretty cool power out of it. Uh, anyway, the summer of 1462. <laughs> I'm, I'm bamboozled. Carrie, Forest of the Impaled aside, this is not looking good for Vlad, right? The Ottomans if effectively occupy all of Wallachia. Yeah, but I'm sure he'll squirm his way out of it until he is eventually cornered somewhere, some way. Well, you know, Carrie, when the Wallachians invade uh, the Ottoman Empire... The winter gets too cold and they have to go home. When the Ottomans invade the Wallachians, the summer of 1462 was just too hot. And the Ottomans eventually decided they had to retreat as mm -hmm. Vlad's forces harassed them in guerrilla warfare all the way out of the country. Inflicting pretty heavy casualties. Again, not enough to matter against 150,000 guys. Radu stayed behind with a few thousand Ottoman troops fighting small, harassing battles with Vlad. And Vlad was a talented commander. Uh, he apparently won every fight against his brother. But each time, the army's morale was dipping lower and lower. Could have been because of all the impalements. That's a lot to deal with. And more and more men were leaving his side and going over to Radu. What did they do with all those bodies? Did, did they have to bury those people? Like, how do you even deal with that? Well, if you're going to go back and move back into the city, yes, Someone's going to have to take all the bodies down and they probably get put in a pit. Yeah. And either burned or buried, you know. Just the, the concept of 20,000 corpses. And yes. then they're all propped up. I don't even know how big a pile of 20,000 corpses is. Like you see something like that in a movie and you go, hmm, this seems like a little much. Yes. This seems like a, you know, a little Th excessive. This is an, invent an invention. Yeah. But, it, wow. <sighs> Radu was, meanwhile, also making hefty bribes to local merchants and nobles to buy their political support, and Vlad had to withdraw to his mountain stronghold in the Carpathians. So this is uh, the Carpathian Mountains. Um, Those are the classic mountains you see in, like, all of the Transylvanian vampire, you know, monster movies. Because they run between Transylvania and Wallachia, and then I think up the east coast of Transylvania. So, um... In the border between Transylvania and Wallachia, in the Carpathian Mountains, he has his mountain fortress where he's, you know, hiding and making plans and increasingly just sending desperate letters to King Matthias for help. Let him rot. Yeah, Matthias had a similar idea to you, Carrie. He had other ideas. He did arrive 
in November of 1462 with some troops, but he quickly had Vlad locked up. Was Vlad charismatic at all, or was he just scary? I think probably a little bit of both. His eyes, his gigantic eyes have a little bit of that Rasputin quality, that like terrifying, but I can't look away vibe. Hmm. I don't think he was like a party animal. No, (laughs) but I'm I'm just wondering why he keeps on getting second chances, even though he's just a magnificent bastard. Well, you know, one of the things about this period in Europe, right, is if you have a family name, like if if Vlad's cousins and dad and brothers, yeah, but you and, even but you even have his brother against him, so it's kind of like, well, why are we keeping this guy alive? His brother doesn't even want him alive, and so he's not going to retaliate if we kill him. His brother is fighting for the Ottoman Empire. His brother's fighting for the Muslims, so that's not uh, that's not good for King Matthias. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, Sean. Yeah, and in this case, the enemy is always the person with the other religion. <laughs> Not the person that just impaled 20,000 people. Okay. (laughs) Men are stupid. All right. Anyway. So Matthias promptly had Vlad locked up and imprisoned as soon as he arrived in Wallachia. Um, He had to explain to the Pope why he had arrested Vlad. So King Matthias uh, produced a letter for the Pope that was allegedly from Vlad and was offering to join up with the Sultan. Like, hey, Mehmed. If you want to get me back to the Wallachian throne, I'll do whatever you want. And he didn't just say, uh, because he impaled a bunch of people, including babies? No, he didn't. That was fine, as long as Vlad could say he was doing it for the defense of Christendom and Christianity. I don't think he was. Well, no, but if he could say it... He could say anything. Well, anyway, these letters were almost certainly forged. They were written, like, in bad Latin... And, uh, like, some scholars have even tried to point at which, like, uneducated farmer who worked for Vlad's enemies, you know, uh, uh, wrote it. But quite likely, he didn't actually write this letter. But Matthias needed an excuse to arrest him, and Matthias probably just didn't want to go to war with the Ottomans yet, which is what uh, Vlad was obviously going to drive back into. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, the first whiffs of the legend of Vlad the Impaler actually began while he was imprisoned. Because there was this newfangled invention called the printing press. And so broadsides featuring stories about Vlad's uh, military victories and woodcuts of his acts of cruelty were very, very popular in German and in the Slavic languages throughout the 1460s and 70s. It's the early version of Fangoria magazine. 100%. (laughs) Um, so he was sort of one of the first bestsellers in history, in a, in a way, because the printing press is like fresh off the presses, if you will. Now, the Saxon stories are brutal, and they likely, you know, you got to take them with a pinch of salt, because again, the Saxons hated this guy, so there's probably some exaggeration. Um, as For example, I don't know if this scene ever actually happened. Vlad had a big copper cauldron built and put a lid made of wood with holes in it on top. He put the people in the cauldron and put their heads in the holes and fastened them there. Then he filled it with water and set a fire under it and let the people cry their eyes out until they were boiled to death. And then he invented frightening, terrible, unheard of tortures. He ordered that women be impaled together with their suckling babies on the same stake. The babies fought for their lives at their mother's breasts until they died. Then he had the women's breasts cut off and put the babies inside head first. Thus, he had impaled them together. It's also said... Um, 
that while Vlad was in prison, he would catch mice and rats in his cell and cut them up into little pieces. Or so he was just a psycho. Or impale them on tiny little stakes. I don't actually believe that one. I think that is like, and look at how evil this guy was. You know, that's Nero stuff. But like, why would they even have to make it up if he really was such a bastard? It's like, why even make it worse? It can't get any worse. Well, yeah, but you know how really hated, you know. I don't know. People say horrible uh, lies about Richard Gere, and he's not hes not nearly as hated as Vlad the No, but it also involves rodents. But do you... <laughs> don't remind me. Yeah, he was impaled by a rodent himself. <laughs> but we love Richard Gere. But um, did he really do this stuff with the babies and and stuff? That's the second reference we've seen to him impaling mothers with their babies. So I know, I- but like that specific cutting off... The breasts and putting the babies in. That feels exaggerative to me, but I bet he did impale women with their babies. I feel like he was probably experimental. Yeah, he was. Well, he was definitely. Brian Eno of impalement. A little avant-garde action, yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, there were Slavic stories written about him at the time, too, that painted him in a much more positive light, but they didn't erase the cruelty. A lot of those same stories of the cruelty are in there. Um, But the Slavs more kind of saw where he was coming from. A lot of these stories are written from a perspective of appreciating the stability of a stronger central government. There's a a Slavic story from around this time about a golden cup that somebody had left on a fountain in Targa Vista, and it just sat there for like a week because there was no crime at all in Targa Vista because everyone was too afraid of stealing. Because obviously, it's it's not stealing if there's no one that owns it. Well, but everyone was just in case somebody owned it. Nobody wanted to touch the cup because if you were a thief, Vlad would impale you. You know what? That's fair. Um, and both. I don't think I would leave my house. Yes. Well, because you never know. Uh, well, but you would want to be seen leaving your house enough to not be considered lazy because both the Slavic and the German stories have Vlad ordering the execution and impalement of people because they were uh, handicapped, lazy, or just poor. Uh, if you couldn't buy your own dinner and you came asking Vlad for help, you were just as likely to get a steak uh, up you as, as you were to get a dinner. But but again, the Slavic... And there's no pushback that he's just not going through any legal process whatsoever. Because I even... He's, a, he's, a, he's basically the king of this little area. Right, but he's killing people for being lazy. Like, it, it's not even stuff that they're doing. It's like the absence of doing. Right, but, I, but again, the stories that were written in, like, Wallachia at the time, like, like the, it seems like the pez, the attitude of a lot of the peasants was like, well, but crime's down and, um, you know, isn't it, isn't it? Yeah, because everyone's dead. Yeah, I, I just wish he didn't have to be so brutal to establish order, but that's what you need. That's what you need in Wallachia, But he's order. also killing people because they're poor. Yeah. So why are the peasants like, at least it's not me. I don't know, Carrie, but these Slavic accounts take much more issue with Vlad's conversion to Catholicism in 1475. They think his fall and eventual death was punishment from God for uh, converting. <laughs> Uh, because 1475 is when the king, Matthias, got a letter from Vlad's old pal, Stephen of Moldavia. Old Steve. And Stephen's like, we gotta get the band back together. Because after being passed between Radu, Vlad's brother, and another Ottoman official for a while, Wallachia had been retaken by Slavs, only for the new voivode, guess who it is, their old friend Basarab. Boston Rob? Boston Rob. Hey, it's me. Uh, (laughs) To turn around and swear fealty to the Ottomans. So Basarab, one of these thorns in Vlad's side his whole life, finally gets on the throne. 
Um, he's been saying Vlad's not going to be loyal to Hungary the whole time. As soon as Basarov gets in there, he goes, I'm with the Ottomans. Mm-hmm. And so Stephen wrote to King Matthias and said, we could really use my buddy Dracula to help kick this jerk out. Mm-hmm. And maybe they thought uh, this was enough time for Dracula to have reformed himself. He's been, in, he's been imprisoned for 13 years at this point. How old is he? Ish? Um, fourteen thirty. To, he's about forty-five years old. Okay, not a spring chicken anymore. No, certainly not. But he still gets into it in physical fighting. So Matthias said, "All right, Vlad can leave prison. He can join the fight against uh, Basarab, but he has to convert to Catholicism first. And then he didn't give them any military aid, but he said that he recognized Vlad as the uh, rightful prince of Wallachia. And um, how did his brother take this? Well, his brother wasn't on the throne anymore. Basarab was. Is Radu still around? Yeah, but he's back in Turkey. And uh, me- meanwhile, Mehmed is is getting oaths of fealty from this new guy, Basarab. So he's like, sure, you're, you're on the throne. That's fine. Mm-hmm. He doesn't care as long as the money's rolling in every year. Just a bunch of psychos. Now, Vlad was still gathering support for his invasion when Matthias sent him to instead go to Bosnia to fight yet another crusade against the uh, Ottomans in early 1476. This might have been his best campaign. Really, he he was older, he was no spring chicken, but maybe he was just pent up from all his years behind bars. He just captured fortress after fortress as he once again resorted to his old terror tactics with mass impalement of prisoners, Doing the classic forest of impalements, he left behind several, like, 10,000 strong, you know, forests of impaled people. Wholesale slaughter of captives in um, basically every settlement he captured, including women and children. But what he found, Carrie, uh, just like uh, Genghis Khan had a few centuries before, is if, you, if you're really, really, really bad when people don't surrender, it does increase the odds of the next city surrendering. And so he had himself a very successful campaign. Just um, just as a, a side note, speaking of pent up and Genghis Khan, uh, did he ever have a wife at any point? Did he ever have kids? Is he like a rapist, uh, you know, kind of leaving bastard children all over the place? He definitely had bastards, but not that many, not as many as his uh, grandfather had. Remember right. His dad had all those brothers. Um, not as many as his grandfather had. He did leave behind a few sons. Um, I don't know if any of them have ever held power in Wallachia. Were they like rightful heir type sons, like within a marriage or? Yeah, he had a wife and and legit sons. Do we know anything about that relationship? Like, was he? No. How was he as a husband? I can't imagine he was great. No. He he had. I'm curious. Nobody who has a penchant for, you know, uh, impaling infants at their mother's breast is going to be like the most supportive partner. But it'd be funny if he was. It would. It definitely would. So we don't know, like, we don't know anything about his wife, if if he was married to her for, like, some sort of alliance anywhere? No, uh, no, he didn't gain, no, I, I know that it wasn't one of those, unless it was, like, local securing power for his dad or something. Mm-hmm. But no, I think he just probably married a, a, a rando. Hey, she's a woman. Okay. Uh, I think he was single when he came back, you know, and took the throne the first time. Mm-hmm. So, sometime in there. On this campaign, Vlad mostly destroyed the cities of Srebrenica, Kuslat, and Zvornik. But then he had to pull back to assist his old boy, Stephen III, after Sultan Mehmed had uh, invaded Moldavia. 
Mm-hmm. And so Vlad led an invasion along with Count another Stephen, Stephen Bathory. Oh, that's oh. a name we'll hear again in this series. Ultimately forcing the Ottomans to break a siege and retreat. And yes, I went and looked it up. Uh, Stephen is the great, great uncle of Elizabeth Bathory, who will be the subject of next week's episode. Birds of a feather. Yeah, what was going on in Romania in these couple of centuries? What's in the water? Uh, so with Moldavia liberated, King Matthias finally leaned on the Transylvanian nobles to assist with one last invasion of Wallachia, and Vlad and the Stevens. <laughs> Great band name. Vlad and the Stevens, together with some Hungarian you know, military support, finally captured Targovista, and Vlad was once again crowned Voivode of Wallachia on, in November of 1476. But Basarab was still out there. He was off doing Ottoman stuff at the time that they, you know, surged into the capital. And he returned, of course, to reignite bitter fighting. Just like with his death, we don't know exactly what date or even what year Vlad died. But a letter from Stephen of Moldavia in January of seven, on January 10th of 1477 said that Vlad and his retinue had all been massacred. By? Accounts vary. Okay. The most likely best attested one, the one that probably is true, is that Vlad and a 2,000-man force were cornered by 4,000... Um, Still not as much as the 150 no. back at that time. No, but double, double the men of Basarab and Turkish troops who routed him, or routed his men, slaughtered basically all of them, uh, Vlad included. Do we know how he died? No. Man. We don't know where he's buried. It's, it, that's, that's not even the only story. It's possible that a disguised Turkish assassin entered Vlad's camp and stabbed him in the back. And it's also said by some that his own troops mistook him for a Turk in the battle and shot him, which sounds crazy until you, uh, until you know that Vlad was known to dress up as a Turkish officer in battles to, like, trick people. Well, you know what? That would be what he deserved. Actually, what he deserved would be to have all of his skin peeled off very slowly and then be thrown in a pit of salt. Well, it might please you that after his death... And then set on fire. And then set on fire. After his death, <laughs> it's been written that the Ottomans cut his corpse into tiny little pieces and then sent his, back to Mehmed, uh, sent his head back to Mehmed II to display at court. But it's also been said that his head was displayed in Voivode Street in um, Wallachia before being buried there. Hmm. Peasant folklore places his burial in the monastery of Snagov, near where the battle happened, where he supposedly died. More like the monastery of Jagoff, am I right? But the supposed, like, unmarked resting place, like, everybody knows that's where Vlad's buried. They dug it up in 1933, and it was just full of horse bones. So he's not there. Or he's a horse, Sean. (gasps) He was in disguise the whole time. I hadn't thought of that. And just like, of course, Larry Talbot turns back into a man after the police shoot him. He's a werehorse. Yeah, he's a werehorse. One other likely resting place that hasn't been dug up is the Komana Monastery, which Vlad had uh, established himself and is also near that battlefield. Um, So some have suggested he's probably under one of the churches in that monastery. But nobody knows. Nobody knows what exactly ended the life of Vlad the Impaler, and certainly nobody knows where his corpse is. And doesn't that, carry make him a little bit, just a better candidate for the undead? Sure, it's certainly more mysterious. He could be wandering around. Um, So I don't think, I certainly don't think 
look, none of this story is in Bram Stoker's book. Like, none of it. So I don't think Bram Stoker knew anything about Dracula. I do think he, he heard the name Dracula associated with Transylvania. And he was like, that's pretty dope. I'll add, he might even, he might have found, heard that he was like known as bloodthirsty, quote unquote. And he might've heard that nobody knew what happened to his body. Like piercing people with sharp things. Sure. Yeah. The piercing, piercing is definitely uh, a part of Dracula. Mm-hmm. And vampire shit. A little in general. penetration. Uh, Carrie, that was the story of, uh, well, I guess Vlad Dracul and Vlad Dracula, but primarily Dracula. <laughs> um, what what do you what do you what do you think? Oh, I think he's terrible. Um, <laughs> I mean, I knew I knew the basics, the very basics, um, mostly from like travel channel shows. It's like the haunted castle of Dracula that I used to watch with my dad when I was little. Would this make a good TV show? It would have to be like an HBO, you oh, know, yes. Game you, of Thrones, be very graphic. Game of Bones, if you will. Um, yeah, I mean, it would. But the thing about it is that he's so evil. It's like having a, a TV show about Hitler, you know, like there's nothing redeeming there. You know, there's if, if that's your protagonist. Well, I think you might make Radu the protagonist. That's the thing. You would have to come in at a different angle. Because he's just so comically evil that you you would not be able to follow with him as think, an audience member for like an extended period of time. I think you do follow with him, but you follow with Radu as well, and it's the two brothers. It has there has to be some sort of opposite. I mean, they were raised so, together at the Ottoman court. You know? What happened to Radu after this? Just lived out the rest of his life. I think he probably went back to Turkey after that. Um, he did have a wife who was from Europe, Serbia or Albania. Mm-hmm. And um, they're all from Europe, Sean. He's where else is she going to be from? Once again, we don't have a, a means or a time of death on him, uh, but sometime between fourteen seventy-five and seventy-seven, he's assumed to have died somehow. Yeah. Well, I copyright the idea for us of Game of Bones, starring Jason Momoa as Radu versus his evil brother Dev Patel. Um, that would be a pretty baller show. Supporting turns from Michael Fassbender, mm-hmm. Nicholas Holt. I mean, this thing is... We'll get Charles Dance in there somehow. Yeah, un- unfortunately, we're going to have to... Re- I think we're going to have to recast Charles Bronson, unfortunately. Well, he's not around. Yeah. We'll find someone. But neither's Vlad. Thank God. Rest in piss. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download. American Vigilante, now. It's Crying Saucers. During our expansive Manson Family series, we hadn't included any news segments because, well, it, it was a lot, okay? It was a lot for me to do. 
It was, it was a lot. It was a lot for everyone, I think. <laughs> but because of that, there are of course some big news stories to catch up on from the last six weeks, and one of the biggest is regarding the alleged alien bodies shown to Mexican Congress, which, due to their dehydrated kind of goofy appearance, have quickly become a meme across social media. It, it, it was so fast that I actually saw these memes before I saw the news articles. Me too. <laughs> it was very much like on TikTok, you know me sleeping type of thing. Um, is you sleeping. <laughs> here's the deal. So two tiny mummified bodies with elongated heads and three fingers on each hand, sort of resembling like alien dolls if they were part burnt chicken nugget. Um, they were presented to Mexico's Congress on September 12th by UFO enthusiasts. I think it's Jaime Mausan, who claimed that they were extraterrestrial corpses. Mausan testified that the purported bodies were originally discovered in Peru near the ancient Nazca lines in 2017. He added that they were about a thousand years old, according to carbon dating done by Mexico's National Autonomous University, which quickly released a statement afterwards saying that the carbon dating was simply to place the remains on a timeline and has nothing to do with the actual classification or origin of the bodies, a.k.a., hey, we're not saying these are aliens or anything. Right. Uh, and the Nazca lines are those cool... In, in Peru, there's these gigantic lines that uh, only if you look at them from high up... Very high up. You can see that they make animal shapes. It's sort of a similar vibe of like crop circles, but on a massive scale. Yeah, and made by ancient people. Yeah, so they're still there. Well, not ancient, but like people a long time ago. <laughs> ancient Pre- to us. Pre-Columbian people. Reuters noted that similar finds in the past have turned out to be the remains of mummified children and that the elongated heads do not prove the mummies are not of this earth because the practice of reshaping skulls dates back at least 45,000 years in human history and was practiced in the area where they were found. Yeah, head binding. Yes. Quote, I think there is a clear demonstration that we are dealing with non-human specimens that are not related to any other species in our world and that all possibilities are open for any scientific institution to investigate it. We are not alone, Mausan told the hearing's attendees, adding that one of the bodies was female and also had been discovered to be carrying eggs. I don't know if that means like ovarian type of eggs or like actual eggs that they would hatch like from a cloaca like a reptile right masan also called the find quote the most important thing that has happened to humanity oh period <laughs> mic drop wow jose de jesus Zalce benitez director of the scientific institute for health of the mexican navy said x-rays 3d reconstruction and dna analysis had been carried out on the remains and that quote i can affirm that these bodies have no relation to human beings this guy works for the mexican navy this part is fascinating Congressman Sergio Gutierrez, who was at the hearing, said that he hoped the hearing would be the first of similar events in Mexico. Quote, we are left with reflections, with concerns, and we're left with reflections, with concerns, and with the path to continue talking about this. However, the Congress did not formally declare the bodies as those of extraterrestrials, as some on social media have claimed. (laughs) And though Massan also testified that DNA testing of the remains did not match any known life on Earth, a Mexican scientist who reviewed the data Massan posted told Reuters that it indicated normal human life. 
The scientist Julieta Fierro said that the presence of carbon-14 in studies on the remains done by Mexico's National Autonomous University proves that the samples were related to brain and skin tissues from different mummies who died at different times and, quote, do not show anything mysterious that could indicate life compounds that do not exist on Earth. So there are parts of human mummies in there, but these aren't just tiny human mummies? There are... So I didn't want to get into the whole carbon-14 thing, but basically... There's stuff in them that they found in other mummies that they've tested is what I got from it. And so there's nothing that says this is from another planet because it's similar to other findings they've had. But this didn't deter Mosan. He told Reuters on Friday that the test results weren't directly related to the bodies presented, actually, but rather were from tests conducted on a different body known as Victoria, which remains in Peru. In clarification, Masson stated, quote, they were found in the same place, they have the same physical appearance, they are the same. And that testing was not done on the two bodies that he was presenting to Congress to avoid damaging them. Okay, but testing was done on another body that's exactly the same. That so, he just didn't bring with him. Right, but, it, but he's saying, no, 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 that's not even data from these bodies. It's like, okay, first of all, you presented this data. Yeah, it's... It, <laughs> It seems very circular. And that's because Masson um, might not be super reliable. He has courted controversy before. He participated in a 2017 TV documentary about other remains found near the Nazca Lines, which experts like Tomasto, Tomasto, Kajiat, Kagiao and paleontologist Rodolfo Salas Gizmondi have said appear to feature doctored mummies. Mm. So he's been criticized before. And now Peruvian officials like culture minister Leslie Ortega have questioned how the specimens, which she said were pre-Hispanic objects, left Peru. Uh, and she's stated that a criminal complaint against Masan has now been filed. Masan stated that he is, quote, not worried and has, quote, done absolutely nothing illegal. But when questioned how the bodies, which he calls Clara and Mauricio... Oh, so many names. <laughs> uh, ...came to his possession, he replied only that he would reveal all, quote, at the appropriate time. Oh, the classic. So we'll be sure to keep you all updated when that time does arrive. Um, but till then, I don't know. Weird, funny story, I guess. It's, de it's definitely that. Um, you know what? It, it looks so specifically like the... the um the like break room aliens from Men in Black. Yeah, the guys I mean, are like, they, ah! they do look like crispy little aliens, but they're probably just mummified children. Yeah, well, how big are they? They're pretty small. But like child small or like <laughs> small, like smaller than. Look that? at them up. Look at them up. They're weird. Just like no, I've seen them, but I can't get a sense of scale from these pictures. Well, you can if you get scale in the picture. All right. <laughs> well, anyway, look them up. They're fun. Um, you know, they're little mummified things. Probably little people. Yeah, they look like uh, Carrie after a nap. Oh, my God. <laughs> Kill me. <laughs> <laughs> and before we go, we also want to shout out our listener, Grayson, our intrepid door dasher. Um, she was the one who had called in a couple episodes ago, left us a lovely message. We just hadn't gotten her name. So she reached out to let us know who she was and thank you so much for your message initially your message this time around and your kind words about the manson family series and our show as a whole and if anybody uh, gets a grayson as a doordash driver 
maybe a little extra tip for, oh, definitely. for a fellow Ain't It Scary listener. Definitely extra tip. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain'titscary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google Voice number 203-666-5529. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and also on Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. We certainly will. And special thanks to those of you already joining us on our top couple of Patreon tiers. Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, Kate Pope, Haley, Ryan, Enrique, Derek, and Ira. Thank you, spooky family. We love you all very much. See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence and give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page.